Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a place of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's good to see if you've got a Bible with you. Go ahead and keep it open to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we are on this journey that's taking us all the way through the story of Jesus from the gospel of Luke, and we are getting close to the finish line. Jesus is especially close to the end of his journey. And today we're going to see one of the most exciting, intriguing, and interesting stories, I think, in all of Scripture. It's one of the few stories that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Only a few of the stories about Jesus' life and his ministry are recorded in all four gospels. The story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just happens to be one of those stories. And it's really fascinating. It's full of insight and information to who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So our goal today is just going to walk right through this text as if we were walking along with Jesus with the goal that we would follow Jesus with our life. All right, so if you've grown up in church, you know this story uh, is a familiar story. If you're new to church, you might be hearing the story for the very first time. You are finding Jesus on the tail end of a significant journey to the city of Jerusalem where he's going to be nailed to a cross. In just a few short days, he's going to arrive in Jerusalem, be tried, crucified, nailed to a cross, and then it sets the way, sets the stage for Easter Sunday. So if you got your Bible, we're going to just walk through this story. Lindsay did a phenomenal job reading for us. We're going to read most of it again, uh, just in smaller chunks. So Luke chapter 19, verse 28. 
says this, it says, when he, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, which is called Olivia, he sent two of his disciples. And so right there, this is the context for the story that's about to unfold. Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem. It's been a pretty long journey. It's 10 chapters in Luke's gospel. He started this journey all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It seems like it was seven or eight months ago. We started this final journey to Jerusalem. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. With a year left in his life and a year left in his ministry, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem with one goal in mind, that he would get to Jerusalem and go to the cross. The purpose of Jesus coming was to make it to the cross. So for 10 chapters, Luke has described every step or most of the steps of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. 10 chapters, many miles, one goal in mind. What was Jesus' goal? It was to make it to Jerusalem, to make it to the cross for a restored relationship with his people. Hear what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, reflecting on the life and the ministry of Jesus, he says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. And then he says this. He says, Looking to Jesus. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is like, live your life with Jesus in view, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I love this line. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This long arduous journey to Jerusalem. Jesus knew from the beginning when he set his face in that direction that what waited for him when he arrived in Jerusalem was a cross. And yet he went anyway with joy. Why? Because his goal was a restored relationship with his creation, a restored relationship with his people. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. And it's been, a, it's been a long journey. It's been insightful. I said every week we've been instructed, encouraged, and inspired as we follow along with Jesus, that we would follow Jesus with our life. We've seen some of the, the most famous teachings of Jesus, just full of wisdom and insight into who God is and who we are. Watch Jesus perform some incredible miracles, healings, and, and some memorable moments. But all of that, in all of that, don't forget the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a wise man. Jesus came from heaven to earth as God in the flesh to seek and save the lost. Last week in Luke chapter 19, earlier in this chapter, he said this very simply. He said, for the son of man, speaking of himself, came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem. It's been 10 chapters, one year, many, many miles. Now Jesus has just two miles left to go in a few days until he finds his way to the cross. I say that because that's the way the story starts. Jesus is on this journey from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem. When he gets near Bethage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, about two miles, he sends two of his disciples ahead of him saying this. He says, verse 30, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away 
Uh, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. So Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem. Just kind of envision this scene because it's, it's one of those things like if, if you've been in church for a really long time, it's so familiar. It's like, yeah, the triumphal entry. You might have come to church today, Doug, with palm branch in hand because you know that this is Palm Sunday. And it's just like one of those traditions that we have. Doug came in the lobby waving a palm branch. Um, we'll get to that part of the story in just a moment if you're just hearing the story for the very first time. Um, but Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem, and all along the way, he's gathered disciples. So he's got the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, uh, and then other people along the way that were making their way to Jerusalem. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've heard him teach some incredible things. They've, they've watched him. They've observed him. They've seen him interact with other people. They're getting excited about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so they're following along with Jesus. And Jesus gets two miles from Jerusalem. And he's, now he's got the 12 guys together, and he sends two of his disciples, and he says, go Go ahead. In the next village you enter, you're, when you enter that village, you're going to find a donkey. You're going to find a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden, which I think is so fascinating. It says, when they went, when those who were sent went away, they found it. Verse 32 says, just as Jesus told them. I was reading and praying through this text last week, preparing for today, and I just circled that phrase. The disciples who went found it just as Jesus told them. Here's the thing we know about Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill all of the prophecies and the promises of God. The Old Testament is full of prophecies about who Jesus would be, the Messiah, the Son of God, when he came to earth. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Some of them were really incredible, things that were completely out of his control. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. We don't have any control over where we're born, right? Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless, blemish-free life. He was rejected by his own people. He was crucified on a cross, just as the Old Testament said, hundred years before the hundreds of years before the life of Jesus would take place. And then, most miraculously, he was raised from the dead. Jesus came to fulfill all the prophecies and the promises of God. But this is a seemingly small prophecy that Jesus was in the process of fulfilling with his disciples. In fact, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, Old Testament passage says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion." Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I love, I love to see the, the prophecies of God, things that were predicted hundreds of, years, hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, find their fulfillment in Jesus. And we always celebrate the really big ones, right? The born of a virgin, crucified on a cross, raised from the dead. But for these disciples, I would suggest that this prophecy that they were part of fulfilling was the most significant prophecy that God told them, Jesus told them that they would find something. And when they arrived, it was just as Jesus had said to the disciples, this was to these disciples, this was no small prophecy. Can you imagine if you were one of those guys and Jesus is on this journey and the excitement is building and he sends you ahead and he says, go to the town in front of you and you're going to find a donkey. And then they arrive and they find it just as Jesus has told them. I think sometimes it's the small things we find just as God has told us that give us confidence while we wait to make sense of the big things that we've yet to figure out. For example, think about this. These disciples, they're traveling with Jesus, and everything is up and to the right at this point. They're excited. The crowds are building. There's momentum. They're watching miracles. They're hearing Jesus teach these incredible teachings. He sends them ahead. They find the donkey just as Jesus had told them. But in just a few hours, in a few days, things are going to get completely out of control. Like, you know how the story ends, right? 
Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, but eventually he's going to be crucified. And they're going to have questions. This man that they left everything to follow is no longer alive. He's buried in a tomb. They saw him crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. And they're going to start to have questions. I wonder if this wasn't the prophecy that these disciples held on to while they waited for the big promises to be fulfilled. And here's what I think, when, how this applies to us. Like, we live in a world that is fractured by the fallout of sin. And we feel it all over the place. So our, see, health failing, health of ones we love failing, relationships, uh, strife in our relationships, and selfishness and sinfulness, and all kinds of fallout from living in, in a world fractured by sin. And none of it should come as a surprise, because Jesus said to his disciples, to us, in John chapter 16, verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Then he says this, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation and trial and turmoil, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You ever feel like you show up at church on Sunday and you hear the good things of the promise, like the good things of God, the promises of God, and you believe them with all of your heart, but you have a hard time the more you feel the fallout from living in a world fractured by sin, believing that they'll actually come true. Maybe like you haven't even admitted, like you, you grew up in church, so you believe who God is and you believe who he is, who he says, and you believe what he's going to do. But the more you live your everyday life and you're living in the uh, in, a, in a relationship that is just like, it seems like there's no end, in, like, no end, there's no good in sight. Um, it's no health, health, uh, sorry, your health is fractured. You're watching loved ones suffer and it just feels like, God, are all these promises true? Or are they too good to be true? Jesus would say, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But the big promise, the upper story is, I have overcome the world. Look for the seemingly smaller promises that God has followed through along the way to give you confidence that he will follow through on the bigger promises one day. The disciples had heard the prophecies and the promises of God. They knew that his kingdom was here, his kingdom was coming. But they were about to witness their Messiah, their Savior, their best friend be crucified to a cross. And I wonder if it wasn't on these smaller promises that they clung to. Like on Saturday after Jesus had been crucified saying he said he was going to come back. Like it doesn't look like he's coming back. It looks like he's crucified. It looks like he's dead. And then reflecting. But remember he said like we would go to the town and we'd see a donkey. And there was the donkey just as he had said. If he can do that, then surely he can follow through on the big promises. I know often I think about like what God has called us to as a church. Like he called us as a collective group of people to plant a church that plants churches in neighborhoods and communities across the city of Orlando to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. And like that's a really exciting vision. And we, we've prayed and we've fasted and we've discerned and, and feel like this is exactly what God is calling us. So we have every believe, reason to believe that God is going to use the Eastside Christian Church to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. But that looks like such a big, daunting task. I mean, there's three million people, half of the people in and around the city of Orlando are doing life every day without Jesus. And we look around and on a really good Sunday, there's like 90 or 100 of us. It's like, well, God, how are you going to use 90 or 100 people to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando? And then as I step away and I think and I fast and I pray, God begins to bring to mind the lives that he's transforming in our midst. And I look around, I think, oh my goodness, God has given victory here. He's healed here. He's found salvation here. And God has begun to transform lives. 
And then I think if God can transform lives, he can use a church to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. If you're dealing with pain or tribulation or suffering, and you hear these promises that God is going to make everything new, he's going to bring everything, he's going to give you peace, perhaps you need to, to think about what are the things that God has already followed through on praying for a relationship and you realize that God is already beginning to bring your heart to contentment, praying for the health and healing of a loved one. You're seeing ways that God has begun to heal spiritually and know that when God follows through on his promises, he's going to follow through on the bigger ones. Uh, Paul would say to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter one, verse six, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this. Paul said that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I say that because these disciples, they show up and they find it just as Jesus said. And when God follows through in the seemingly small promises, we pray with confidence and, con and trust that he's going to follow through on the big promises. But the story goes on. It says this, verse 33, it says, And as they were untying the colt, so these guys, they go to the city in front of them. They find a donkey there. They, Jesus told them to untie it, so they start to steal a donkey. Uh, they, they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Which, this is part of the story that we just read right past. And I was struggling with that this week, because if I was the owner of a colt, in those days, the donkey was pretty uh, valuable. It was their means of transportation. For many of them, it was their means for, for work, to go to and from work, or to accomplish the work for which they depended on for survival. And these two strangers show up. And they start to untie the donkey and they go out and it just seems like they nonchalantly say, hey, why are you stealing our donkey? And the disciples answered, because the Lord needs it. And the way I learned the story growing up, they're just like, oh, okay. I mean, if the Lord needs it, go ahead and steal my, steal my car, right? Like it's still got new donkey smell, but it's never been ridden, but the, the, they're just letting people take it. Thinking if that was me, the Lord better show up and tell me he needs it because I'm not taking your, I'm not giving you the keys to my car just because you said God needs it. Which like, you see that a lot, right? People abuse that. God told me, like, I don't believe that. God did not tell you that. But nonetheless, the, the people, like the, the Lord better show up and tell me, which is this week I was wondering, is it doesn't say, and we have to read between the lines, but maybe God did tell them. Like it doesn't say. But what we know is that they just let the donkey go, this brand new colt. What if, what if these people who owned the donkey had also spent time with Jesus? What if they had listened to the teachings of Jesus? What if they read the story in Zechariah and knew that the Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem, not on a war horse as the conquering king, but as a humble servant riding on a donkey? What if they had spent time with God and he did tell them that their donkey would be the donkey Jesus would ride into Jerusalem? That for 2,000 plus years, as the church told the Easter story, they would talk about the miracle that took place on the donkey that they provided. And then I started to wonder, what if God would allow us to play a significant part in his story if we would lean in and listen? These are my favorite people in all of the Bible. Because we spend so much time talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus is my favorite person in all the Bible. But other than Jesus, like with Peter and Paul and these great disciples. But I love the people whose names we never know who made the story happen. Like they were willing to provide their new cult so Jesus could ride it in. They made it possible for the crowd to see and celebrate Jesus, and we don't even know their names. Like those are my favorite people 
in all of scripture. And I wonder what opportunities I missed because I didn't lean in and listen to what God had to say. But here's the, the convicting thing as we see their story. Like this Easter, this Easter week, this, this holy week, just like the very first Easter week in the first century resurrection, as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday, what part can you play in the story that God is writing? Like, what do you have? Do you have a donkey or a car? I don't know. But like, what do you have that the Lord can use? They just simply said the Lord has need of it. What do you have that the Lord can use so other people can see who Jesus is and celebrate him this Easter? Like, is it a relationship? Is it a relationship that you've been cultivating over, over some, some time that you feel like now is the time, the Holy Spirit is saying now is the time to invite them to church? We're going to throw a really big party next Saturday to invite friends and family, neighbors, and coworkers because we want people, we want to build bridges so those who are doing life without Jesus can come and hear who Jesus is and meet people who love Jesus. Is there a relationship you should leverage? Is there influence that you've been cultivating at the workplace that you can use that to invite people to come and hear the gospel message for the very first time? An invitation you can extend, an ability you have. Maybe, maybe what you have is an ability to serve the kingdom through the local church that you've yet to invest. Resources. God has blessed you with tremendous resources. You've yet to invest them. And, and like these guys, the, the Lord is saying, the Lord has need of it. What is it that you can invest in the kingdom of God so that other people can see and celebrate Jesus? And then are you leaning in to listen so that when the opportunity comes, when the disciples arrive to untie the colt, and they say the Lord has need of it, you're willing to give what God has called you to give. Do you know what Jesus is asking for? The story goes on in verse 35. It says, and they brought it to Jesus. They threw, they threw their cloaks on the colt. They sat Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, so this massive crowd, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this is the triumphal entry. This is the story that we celebrate the Sunday before Easter every year for 2,000 years. It is Jesus riding into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecies, the promises of God on a donkey. He's a humble servant. And they roll out their red carpet. They extend a royal welcome because the disciples and those gathered around Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they see Jesus as the long-awaited king, the king that they had been looking forward to, the king that they had been longing for. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises of God. And then we have, to, it, it, he was the king they had been waiting for. Or was he? Because the sad reality is after this joyous moment in four or five days, those same crowd would gather in Jerusalem and instead of shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, they would shout, crucify him. Why? Why would they go from shouting Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him in such short time because Jesus wasn't the king they were looking for. They were looking for a king who would come and conquer Rome. They were looking for a king who would give them political freedom. They were looking for a king who would give them autonomy from the nation that had invaded their homeland. Jesus came to bring peace with God. Another convicting part of the story is, I thought, man, as I was reading this, I thought I would never celebrate Jesus for selfish reasons. I would never celebrate Jesus for selfish reasons, would you? 
Like, would you celebrate Jesus for selfish reasons? Then I begin to think and audit my thoughts and look into my heart, and I realize, man, there are so many times that I look to Jesus to give me things that Jesus never promised to you. Ever been your experience? Ever look to Jesus to save you something that Jesus didn't come to save you from? What Jesus did is he came, as we already said, his purpose was to come to seek and to save the lost, to save us from sin. So often, we, are, we would rather Jesus save us from the circumstances of our life than to cut away the sin in our life. So often we would rather Jesus just repair our relationship with our husband or our wife or repair our relationship with a friend or heal us from our, than repair the relationship with God or heal us from a physical illness instead of healing us from the sin problem that is causing all the problems. Tim Keller uh, has written a book on uh, this idea of idolatry which is just simply treasuring something else more than we treasure Jesus. That's what's taking place here. They see Jesus riding into Jerusalem. They see him coming as a king. And what they're looking for is Jesus to do for them what they want Jesus to do for him. I was reading his book and Tim Keller says, we all really struggle with worshiping idolatry, treasuring something else more than we treasure Jesus. And he says, idolatry can demonstrate itself in infinite number of ways and possibilities, but it really boils down to four different things, four things that we idolize, we cherish more than we cherish Jesus. And the first thing he said is we cherish power. That one of the idols we struggle with is that we cherish power, this deep longing for influence and recognition. And when we shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we're really hoping instead of that God would save us from our sin, that he would give us power, that he would give us influence and recognition. We pray to God to give us power. If it's not power, perhaps it's control, which is longing for everything to go according to your plan. And, you, and you're really praying that God would just give you control. If you would just help me control my life, God, then everything will be in, in, in order. Or the idol of comfort, longing for pleasure and ease. And what we're really hoping God will do is not save us from our sin, but just give us a life of pleasure. Just make life easier, God. Just make it more enjoyable, more pleasurable, more easy for me. The fourth and final one, he says, is the idol of approval. Just longing to be accepted or desired, longing for the affection of others. Here's the thing, Jesus didn't come just to treat uh, the symptoms and to make the, the external things go easier. He came to save us from our sins. The, the people there shouting, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, they were looking for Jesus to come and give them power. Like they wanted the nation of Israel to be powerful again. They wanted control over their homeland. They wanted comfort. They didn't want to be taxed by the Romans. They wanted to be controlled by the Romans. They wanted God's approval. But what Jesus came to do is he came to treat the sin problem. And they weren't looking for a king who would treat the sin problem. They were looking for a king who would save them from the, um, the symptoms instead of healing the illness. And Jesus could see right through it. Jesus could see right through the praise to the heart of the people. It says in verse 41, he says, And when he drew near to the city and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. This day where he's being celebrated, there's a parade thrown in his honor. When he gets near to the city of Jerusalem, he weeps over because he can see through the praise to the heart of the people. And then Jesus says in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What Jesus is saying is like you shouting, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. The other gospels tell us they were shouting Hosanna, which means save us, save us. And he says, if today you had known the things that were called for peace, you're looking for external peace, you're looking for physical peace, but the real peace that I came to bring is peace with God, a restored relationship with God. You're missing that completely. For the days will come upon you, he says, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another 
uh, in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus is saying, this is really fascinating. Jesus comes in this triumphal entry. They're looking to him to be the king, to save them from the Roman occupation. And Jesus says, man, if you just knew the kind of peace I came to bring, it's not temporary peace. It's not to get rid of the Romans. It is to bring peace between you and God, that tension that we feel, that we wrestle with, the fallout of living in a world fractured by sin. I came to fix that problem, the real problem, the underlying issue of all of your problems, but you've missed it. So here's what's going to happen. There is going to be physical fallout from your lack of, uh, from your spiritual sickness. And you look at the, the history books outside of the Bible, about 40 years, a little less than 40 years after Jesus said to the people of Jerusalem, the Roman Empire circled the city of Jerusalem and they, they laid siege to it. Because when Jesus didn't conquer Rome the way that they had hoped he'd conquer Rome, they took it into their own hands and they led a revolt against the Romans. And the Romans were willing to let the Jews do basically whatever they want except for fight against Roman control. They were the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And so when the, when the, the Jews took it into their own hands to free themselves from Rome because Jesus didn't free them the way they had hoped they freed them, the Romans didn't want any part of it. In, in, the, in 70 AD, a few years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Roman Empire took their army, they circled the city of Jerusalem, they laid siege to it. It was actually at Passover, the same time of year. And what was really fascinating is they let people into the city to worship. And the Jews, they walked right through the Roman Empire, right through the Roman army. And they went into the city of Jerusalem. They celebrated Passover. And then Rome wouldn't let them leave. And so they consumed all of the resources. They starved the people nearly to death. And when they were at their weakest, the Roman Empire went in and laid siege to Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They killed men, women, and children. They completely massacred the capital city of God's people. Why? Because they try to take peace, their peace efforts into their own hands. They thought they could do it. They didn't look to Jesus to, to bring peace the way that he promised. They, Jesus didn't bring the peace that they wanted. And so they took it into their own hands and they dealt with the fallout, the physical fallout of their spiritual sickness. Jesus finishes this triumphal entry, and he, he's weeping over Jerusalem, and he rides this donkey right to the heart of the problem. It says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the, and then they wanted to kill Jesus, and in a few short days they would. But this triumphal entry, everyone's celebrating Jesus. They're so excited for who he is and what they think he's going to do. And Jesus comes into the city and he's heartbroken because he hears their praise, but it's empty. They're not looking for the peace that Jesus brings. They're looking for a peace that is just going to treat the surface issues of their life. And so Jesus goes right into the temple, the heart of the city, the place where the people went to meet with God. And when he gets in there for the second time in his ministry, he drives out the people buying and selling there. And he says, this was meant to be a place of prayer. This was meant to be a place where you met with God. You've made it a den of robbers. And we don't have time to fully unpack it, but what started as a sacred place, the temple for people to offer sacrifices under the old covenant to restore their relationship with God, it just became a place of commerce and convenience. It lacked conviction. People would, there were money changers there who would take the Roman money that the people brought and mark it up and give them uh, Jewish money so they could go in and they could uh, buy, offer the temple, offer money at the temple. It was really fascinating. The other gospels tell us that Jesus didn't just drive out the money changers. It says he drove out those who were selling, but also those who were buying. In the place where they were supposed to come and bring their own sacrifices, people had 
kind of gotten to this place where they were just showing up and they didn't want to bring a lamb with them on the long journey. It was too much effort to offer their own sacrifice. They didn't want to bring the, the doves and things. So when they would arrive at the temple, they would just buy it. And it just kind of became this place of convenience and it lacked conviction. And Jesus drove it. I said, this was meant to be a place of prayer. This was meant to be where you came to the presence of God and it has become a place of commerce and convenience. It is this, you're looking for a transactional relationship with God where you show up, you give him what you think he wants and he just blesses you. Jesus says, I came to restore the relationship with me. And with this, Philippians chapter three, verse seven. The Apostle Paul writes to a church gathered in the first century city of Philippi, a church perhaps not a lot larger than we are. And he says this, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What Paul is saying is he had everything the world could offer. We talk about those different idols. Paul was, he had power. He, he lived a comfortable life. He had influence. He had the affection and the, the approval of others. He says, I counted all of that as a loss because the most important thing is knowing Jesus. He said, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I love this text, especially in light of the triumphal entry with Easter Sunday on the horizon, because so often, though we say we would never celebrate Jesus for selfish reasons, we never cry out for salvation from temporary things, so often I think we're just like this crowd. We come to Jesus and what we really want is we want him to set our life in order. We want him to restore relationships, we want him to give financial blessings. We want him to heal our, uh, our sickness and our ailments. When Jesus came and said, I came so that you would know God. So you, I came to seek and to save the lost. I came on this journey, not just the journey to Jerusalem, but from heaven to earth so that my people could know the God who created them and called them to himself. Paul says, I've had everything this world could offer, but I counted all the loss because the most important thing is knowing Jesus in his righteousness, not that comes based on my efforts, but that comes based on faith in Jesus, that I'm gonna trust that Jesus is gonna do for me what I cannot do. And then I'm gonna be willing to suffer for Jesus. I'm gonna be willing to set aside power and influence and comfort in this world and ease in this world so that I can have more of Jesus. And then Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection next week as we celebrate Easter Sunday, we are going to celebrate the resurrection. It's an incredible opportunity to invite friends and families and neighbors and co-workers, everyone who needs to hear the good news of Jesus. We're going to talk about Easter. We're going to talk about the resurrection, how we can experience the resurrection by putting our faith in Jesus. But here's the conviction as we think about the triumphal entry. The only way that we experience resurrection power is to count everything a loss compared to knowing Jesus, to look to Jesus for the reason which he came to save us from our sin. And here's the thing. When you let Jesus start to take away the sin in your life, the rest of your life, the symptoms, they start to get better. Very, maybe too transparent. Like when Carissa and I, uh, once in a while, we don't agree. 99% of the time, it's because of me. But once in a while, it's her. When we don't agree, one of the things we've learned is to say like, okay, we don't, we don't agree here. Um, She's yelling at me. I would never yell at her. And um, I'm kidding. Um, we don't yell at each other. 
and I wouldn't tell you if we did. Uh, we, uh, but we start to look at, at the, the issue and we stop saying like, this is what I want or this is what you want. It's like, and where's the sin here? Because what fractures our relationship isn't her ideas or my ideas, it's sin. And when we start to treat the sin, the relationship mysteriously, magically, miraculously gets better. And I know that's probably been your experience. If it's not, my invitation would be come and find out who Jesus is for real and what he wants to do for you. And when you let him take away the sin, and when you let him heal you from the thing for which he came to save you from, the rest of life starts to get better. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to read this story, this story of a triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem. He came not as a conquering king that everyone has expected, but he came as a humbling ser- as a humble servant. He gave his life to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish on our own. And while the audience there in the first century was looking for him to set them free from the occupation of Rome, he set us free from the occupation of sin in our life. He pushed back the devil and darkness and sin and the grip it held on us, death, so that we would no longer have to live in fear. Father, I know that I often look to you for healing from temporary things when you came to heal the sin problem in my life. Father, I, I trust that many of us are doing the same thing. So this, this Palm Sunday, as we look forward to Easter Sunday, Lord, I pray that you, your Holy Spirit, would convict us. Convict us of those areas where we have trusted you, not for the thing for which you came. God, convict us, draw us to repentance, to put our faith in you, to trust you, to do for us what you could never do. Lord, let us count everything in this life rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And as we know you, we might experience today the power of your resurrection, what it means to live life with Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.